Yo, yo. What up, what up? Welcome to the WTF Should I Do It My Life podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Sokol, and this podcast is all about helping you live with greater levels of success, purpose, and authenticity while being strategic about the unique challenges and opportunities that exist today. If you've reached the top of the mountain in life only to find that you didn't quite get what you were looking for, or you're on the way to the top of the mountain and kind of realize, you know what, I don't think this is where I'm meant to be and I'm craving that deeper fulfillment and purpose while you are in the right place. Because these interviews are designed to bring more clarity, more confidence, and more inspiration into your life so that you can live with the fulfillment you desire and perform better in all the areas that matter most to you. Today we are in for a big treat. We've got none other than Harry Pickens with us, who is an award-winning pianist, composer, educator, and life transformation coach who's traveled the world, performed for the Dalai Lama, and been featured in an Emmy award-winning documentary. Harry is an amazing guy with so much soul, so much science, which was the other word that I started to slur in there. And just an incredible, huge heart. Every time I get to hear Harry speak, I just feel this download of truth coming through him. And so uh, let me get back into his formal intro here. Harry believes that humanity is on the threshold of the most astonishing positive transformation in the whole of human history. And he's committed to doing his part to help usher in a new era of peace, justice, harmony, and abundance for all. His first book, In Tune, Lessons in Life from a Life in Music, will be released in November 2016. And today we just get to go all over the place in this interview with some amazing combinations of soul and science and heart and so much more. Some things specifically that we dive into are three exercises to help find clarity by using your intuition. We talk about how to take grounded action by tapping into your inner GPS. We talk about what Harry calls the great discovery, which leads to massive freedom. And we also touch on some psychological tools that you can use to align yourself with your soul. With no further ado, let us get started. Harry, thank you so much for joining us today. Man, I am so delighted to be in your presence anytime. It's a blessing, man. Thank you. Oh, I love it. I love your energy. I love your heart, your soul. And really, when I hear you talk, it feels like such a gift for me to be able to just sit back and soak it in. Uh, so often when I, I hear you speak, um, you, you help connect me to a deeper part of myself. And I recognize that through uh, goosebumps or, or chills. <laughs> And uh, just that deeper truth. So everyone who's here listening today, you're in for a treat. And I think a, a great place to start for people uh, who are looking to get more familiar with your story, such as myself, maybe you can just kind of take us through a little bit of your journey. These days you are, you're a musician and you're a coach, but, um, but take us back in the day, kind of what's, what's brought, a, brought you down the path to where you are now? Well, you know, it's really... Interesting for you to ask that. Thank you for that story. Um, I've been, I've, we first met at Rich's event when you heard me play the piano and speak. And I've been playing the piano literally for 50 years, since I was five years old. And music has ta taken me all over the world. <clears throat> it's, I played with Dizzy Gillespie and Freddie Hubbard and Milt Jackson and all these folks. And it's taken me to places and experiences that I never would have had otherwise. But the most important lesson I've learned from a life in music isn't about music at all. It's about what music's taught me about life itself, you know. And as far as my story, there's a couple of pieces that are probably kind of significant. I'm, I was born in Brunswick, Georgia, southeast corner of the state of Georgia in the 1960s. I happen to be of African and Native American descent, and that was an interesting time to grow up in this country. Um, but probably what's most interesting in terms of what you deal with with your listeners is I know that you're all about how to live the life that you were born to live, how to create the possibilities that you feel in your heart and your soul and your gut, you know, how to create, make a difference and an impact in the world, you know. And one of the most important lessons I learned along that route happened, you know, a lot of times when you have an adversity of some kind, 
Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, said every adversity contains within it the equivalent, the, the equivalent of a, a greater benefit, you know. And the biggest adversity in my earlier years was when I was 16, 17. I used to have stage fright. And that stage fright was so debilitating. I wanted to perform, right? But seven days before my performance, I'd stop sleeping. And four days before performance, I'd throw up all the food I took down. And a day or two before performance, my heart would beat really fast, 140, 150 beats a minute. I figured, okay, as a professional musician, one gig a week, I'm dead in six months, right? You know, so <laughs> it made sense. It, but, you know, it was interesting because that challenge, which was one of the most significant early challenges of the first 25 years of my life, opened the gateway to what has now become a lifetime of search and exploration and curiosity about human development and how we become what we can be. And so what that stage fright issue did for me is, of course, I overcame it. I performed a couple of years ago for the Dalai Lama in front of 20,000 people. It was like talking to you on the phone. But one of the things that I learned had to do with this power that we have to shape our future by the thoughts and perceptions and beliefs we hold and images we hold in the present. You know, so I would say that that was probably one of the most significant pieces of those earlier years of my life. Then I spent the 80s, my my 20s, uh, living in New New Jersey. Um, I went to Rutgers University, that's where I finished, and I lived in Highland Park, New Jersey, not too far from Manhattan. And I was in and out of New York a lot, performing, touring all over the world, got to do that for many years. Um, End of the 1980s, I got fed up with the performance life. I found that there was more that I was seeking, and performing was great, and getting standing ovations was great, and going all over the world was great, but there was something in my soul that I was more hungrier for. And let me ask, how did you recognize that? You know, it's funny. I recognized it all along in little, in, in little, in different implements, diff, different um, iterations. You know, when I first started playing the piano, it was this fascinating array of black and white keys, and I'd play them, and they'd make these sounds, and it would take me into this universe of sound and color and energy and emotion. It was fabulous. And then I got a little older, and it became about the pursuit of excellence, about being really, really good, and about becoming as the best I could be. Then it became really, I became really competitive, and it was about Whose butt could I kick? You know, and if I was 22 and I saw somebody play pretty well and they were 27, I'd say, okay, good, I got five years to kick their butt, right? (laughs) But if they were 22 or 21 or 19 or whatever, then I would kind of sometimes freak out and I wasn't so happy about that. But it was all driven by competition. And when you, a lot of times you have those goals, I think it was Tony Robbins that said, um, the greatest failure is achieving success without fulfillment. You know, the greatest failure is achieving your goals but not feeling like you really are fulfilling your heart and your soul. And so what happened is I was doing all this performance and I was having these wonderful experiences. I had a contract with Blue Note Records, which was the top jazz record label at the time. But at the same time, I felt inside myself that I was here for something more. I felt inside myself that there was something else that I was supposed to do or to create or to experience that performing alone did not fulfill. And so then by the the late 80s, I moved to San Diego and stopped performing completely, actually got a job as in a telemarketing sales room working for Robert Allen, who was the guy who wrote Creating Wealth and was real estate guru. And that led to me doing marketing consulting, learning about copywriting, kind of going through a several year period of like, WTF do I do it in my life? Just exploring different things. You know, and that led to a number of other things involving teaching and consulting and presenting and so forth, which is a long story I won't go into. But essentially it was the, for all of my life, I have been, like you, I learned by obsession. When I was eight years old, I got a goldfish. Most kids get a goldfish and they enjoy the goldfish, they feed the goldfish, then they forget about the goldfish, not me. I take my mom, I have my mom take me to the to library and I read every possible book I can about the marine kingdom. So I'm this little obnoxious Jacques Cousteau <laughs> telling everybody I know about everything I know about fish, right? And like six months later, it's like model airplanes, and I learn about World War II, and six months later, it's stamps or coins or whatever. So I would always get laser-focused for a period of time, and I'd learn what I need to learn, and then I'd move on. 
But part of that learning and that desire to continually learn and grow, I would focus on music and I would focus on performance. And then I would find another, excuse that telephone that's ringing, I'm sorry about that, turn it off. Um, I would find another possibility and then I'd find another possibility and then I'd find another possibility after that. So it became this perpetual learning and looking. And finally, at about the age of 50, Jacob, I figured out. There's a woman named Barbara Scher, who's a career consultant, and she wrote a book called Refuse to Choose. And in her book, she essentially talks about how 15 percent of the people she's worked with over her 30 or 40 years don't fit into any of the standard career paths because they are multiple. They have multiple interests and multiple passions and multiple motivations and multiple desires. And she started calling them scanners because they are people who are only fulfilled when they are actively engaged in synthesizing or involved in multiple areas of activity. And so when I read that book, it brought me a sense of peace because for much of my life, it's like jack of all trades, master of none. But I realized what I was developing was what is really my core skill, which is the skill of synthesis and then the skill of communication and serve and helping others with that. So I just went through like 14 different careers before I got to that. I love it. And I think, you know, when we were speaking privately before our interview today, um, even, even in the days leading up to it, you know, what I got from you is that you had a particularly challenging experience with uh, a 10 year illness. And I, I don't know how deep you want to go into that, but I, I do sense that from that came some of the greatest wisdom that you learned and then ultimately passed forward. Is there any part of that, uh, that you'd be inspired to take us into and help unpack? Jacob, you are a brilliant interviewer because you know exactly the questions to ask. Um, and I can, I, intu- I just have this intuitive sense that part of your interviewing brilliance has to do with your listening to your own intuition about what needs to emerge next. So anyhow, the, the brief story about that. In 1998, I moved into a house in San Diego that I didn't know at the time, but was infested with mold. I became very, very ill because I always was a little bit compromised having grown up with asthma and had some respiratory Um, vulnerabilities all along. In addition to living in that house for several months, I also, I'm six foot nine, and being six foot nine is an occupational hazard when you live in a world that's designed for people who are five seven, right? Most doors are not six foot nine when you go through them, and sometimes if you don't look, you can bang your door, bang your head, rather. Over about a 10-year period, I hit my head about once or so a year, badly enough on a door, a chandelier, something. So I'd have 10 or 15 minutes of slurred speech afterwards. I never thought twice about it because I never lost consciousness. But I found out later that I had a mild form of traumatic brain injury or post-concussive trauma. So combine the post-concussive trauma with living in the house with mold, they created a situation where I became very, very ill. And I was ill for about 10 years altogether. Now, the consequence of this illness was that at one point, at the very lowest point, I'm six foot nine, I weigh 230 pounds, which is a good size for me, but I'm not a football player big guy. I'm still, I'm a good size, but I'm, I'm relatively slender. At the, my lowest point, Jacob, I weighed 187 pounds. A good day looked like getting up, going to the bathroom, eating a meal, and going back to bed. It was really rough. At one point, I remember coming back from the doctor the one doctor who was able to help me at the time, his name is Dr. Sockerman in San Diego. He's no longer living. He's a great, fabulous doctor. But I'd moved out of the house, and I was living in an extended-stay motel for a couple of months until I found a place to, to live. And I walked back. I staggered back into the motel room. And my task for the day, I had a box of business cards. And those business cards, I wanted to input the cards into my database. This was before the day of smartphones, you know. I was going to input them into my, my, my desktop computer and into my database. You're throwing it back with the index cards. Seriously. Man. You're, you're really, well, you're well, making well, me this, think this, of this. my dad. I remember he had a, I forget the exact <laughs> terminology, but it was this little place we went over to with index cards in them and you looked people up. 
dude. I mean, I remember the days of the Rolodex, which was really a physical, you know, device that you you wrote people's names and addresses down with a piece of paper on with a pit on paper, you know, and you look through it. That's exactly yeah. it. That was it. Seriously, the Rolodex. Seriously, old school. But anyhow, I had I had business cards in a box, and I was going to input them into my computer, a, de- a huge desktop computer at the time. You know, this is like late nineties, um, and I was so weak that I couldn't do it. And I sat on the edge of the bed and I just cried. It's like, holy, pardon my expression, holy fuck, you know. Mm. I, um, at that moment, from my understanding, my greatest understanding, I lost everything that was important to me. I lost my physical vitality, my intelligence, my capacity to think and remember, my creativity, my capacity to play the piano. I was... I wasn't completely incompetent, but my fine motor coordination wasn't what it needed to be. Um, and most importantly, my capacity to keep my word. I couldn't say, hey, hey, we're going to hang out on Friday at lunch. And most likely Friday when lunch guy came, I would have to call you and say, hey, dude, I'm sorry, I can't make it. I'm sick. So everything that I thought I was, I lost at that moment. And so I'm at the edge of the bed with the box in my hands in tears. And I had a moment of insight, which I believe to be a moment of grace, grace being a communication from the divine, whatever we believe it to be. And that insight was for me to take the cards one at a time and just send love to every person. And I did. I took the first card and I closed my eyes and I just imagined sending love like the sun shining on that person. And I did the second card. And I did this for an hour. There are probably 100 business cards. And at the end of that hour, Jacob, I wasn't better physically, but something had changed. Something had shifted inside me. And as I look back at it now, that was the moment when I really got what Viktor Frankl wrote about in Man's Search for Meaning. That you can take everything away from a person except one thing, their capacity to use their superpower of focus and attention to put their mind and their consciousness in a different place. I learned that. I learned to refuse to buy into, whether it's in the culture or in my own mind, the ideas of limitation that I bought into. And the other thing I learned was that I could in any moment infuse my present moment with love, with consciousness. Wallace Waddles, who wrote the book, The Science of Getting Rich, that the book more recently, The Secret, is based on. In one of his books, I think this is his earlier book called The Science of Being Great. He says, it's important that we learn to fill our present place to overflowing. That is, whatever we're doing, we do it with all our might. And what I learned sitting on the side of the bed in exhaustion and weakness that summer afternoon in August 1998, was that I could choose my thoughts. I could refuse to buy into my fears. And I could infuse every moment of my life with love. And so that it was it took me 10 years to recover. But that moment was like opening the drapery and letting a, 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 a shaft of sunshine into a dark room hmm. to illumine a pathway that I could then begin to take. And I just want to unpack and, and reflect for everybody who's listening who might say, oh, well, that's great for Harry, but what about me? Um, you know, Harry, from what I got from you, you know, this is someone who who went to 16 different doctors who told him he wouldn't get better, right? This yeah. is, when we talk about Viktor Frankl, we're talking about someone who was in in the Holocaust, in concentration camps. So when Harry is talking about your ability to refuse to buy into limitation and to infuse love into the moment, this is not just some, you know, bumper sticker wisdom as far as like, you know, just uh, wish, wish your way into everything's going to work out and blah, blah, blah. These are people who've actually experienced deep challenges in a way that most people would say are are doomed and have been able to find a way to choose 
how to respond to the situation. And that's, that's the Viktor Frankl thing that I love so much, which is like, you can be in a concentration camp. You can have everything taken from you except for one thing, the, the last of the human freedoms, which is to choose how you respond to the situation. And that starts in our, in our consciousness. So Harry, I love that. Thank you for sharing. You're, you're welcome. And I, I believe that it's incredibly, and you're right, you can think of these things as bumper sticker wisdom and take them on a very superficial level. And I also believe that life gives us the opportunity. This is what I love about what Napoleon Hill wrote. Every adversity contains within it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Because a lot of the times you don't know what you're made of until it's really tested. Ah, yes. You know, no goodies, no, no grit, no goodies, right? Yeah. And my experience of that illness, which again was 10 years. Yeah. 16 doctors told me that I couldn't get better. I ended up using, I made a chart one time, like there were 35 or 36 different therapies from acupuncture and Qigong to, uh, intravenous vitamins to hyperbaric oxygen, all these different things I tried. But one thing that's true about me that I learned about me at that time is that I'm relentless. I just don't stop. I won't give up until I find a solution. I recently have been dealing with a bout of insomnia that's been going on on and off for about eight months now. And I haven't completely solved it, but I'm about 95% there. So last night, for example, I slept for six hours in a row, which was really great. Um, And I'm not going to stop until I find it. So I think sometimes the universe or life will give us opportunities that test our metal, that really give us the opportunity to dig deep, deep, deep down to the core of who we are and activate our power of choice. Mm, so good. So you talk about the, something that you call the great discovery, and then you also uh-huh. talk about something called the great transformation. We started to touch on the great discovery today and um, and even the great transformation, but, but I want to go a little bit more uh, deeply into the great discovery and, and maybe just unpack what that is and how people who are listening can apply that to their situation these days. Thank you for that. Yes. And We've actually talked about it because my stage fright experience and my illness experience were experiences that allowed me to really begin to understand and learn how to use what I refer to as the great discovery. You know, Jacob, if you think about the problems that human beings have, whether it's individuals being Um, stuck in jobs they don't really want to be in or relationships that don't serve them or not living a life of purpose. Or we talk about things like the current political polarization or war and poverty and injustice and all these social challenges. It's possible to look at the cause of these as having a single root. And the way I interpret it is that Although we are born for love, and we now know this from a neurological and evolutionary biology standpoint, human beings are born for love, connection, community, compassion. But the problem is we get wired, literally why our brains get wired for fear, for separation, for scarcity. So we struggle to thrive. But the good news is at this time, only this is only the last 10 years or so, we finally have both the tools and techniques, and some tools are old, some are new, as well as the research-validated scientific understanding that allows us to, through an act of attention and will and imagination and focus, change that wiring and programming and return to our true nature as love. And I believe therein lies the hope of humanity that we can, through our own intention, transform our thinking and our lives. And the great discovery is this. We now know that this idea of thinking in a different way or imagining yourself successful, whatever tool you use to do that, it's not just metaphysics. It's not just philosophy. It's not just spirituality. It's not just some nice pie-in-the-sky thing. The great discovery is that we now know that when we change our thinking, we literally change the physical structure and function of our our brains. 
self-directed neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity, plasticity, of course, is the brain's capacity to rewire itself through experience, right? So it's it's but, like the brain is like plastic, right? So it's like exactly. you, you can mold it and, and shape it based right. on the thoughts that you have. Yeah, the, the, the thoughts, the imagination. I mean, it, it's wonderful because only in the last 10 years do we have these functional MRIs and all these ways of actually studying the brain. And I mean, for example, one thing that we know is that We've known this for 50, 60 years. If you practice a sport or you practice a musical instrument and you practice that over and over and over, that physical practice changes your brain. So if we did a brain scan of your brain, Jacob, on day one and say you start playing tennis and you have never played tennis before and you practice every day for two or three months, we do a brain scan at the end of those three months and you're going to show new growth in the parts of your brain that coordinate coordination in the right hand for, for, for serving, for example. Hmm. Or if you play the, learn to play the piano or the flute or the bass or the guitar, you will see a physical difference in your brain from day one to, say, day 30 or 60 or 90 as a result of you practicing. Or if you're a gymnast and you practice a new movement in gymnastics or in martial arts, by the end of that practice period, it will show a change in your physical brain. Well, here's the amazing part. Not only does physical practice change the brain. But since 1995, there have been studies indicating that mental practice alone also changes the brain almost to the same degree. So what does so, that mean? Well, that means, for example, um, there's a scientist and his name was uh, Pasquale Leone, 1995. He conducted experiments that compared changes in the brains of people who practice playing the piano physically with people who have practiced the piano mentally. And he found that the brain changes the new neural connections, the new dendrites which connect neurons, the new neural maps that are formed, that are the physiological representation of new skill, were almost the same wow. from mental rehearsal. So what that means is literally the metaphysical thought, the invisible idea becomes the physical thing, the visible manifestation. Hmm. That means we are literally changing our brains with our thoughts, our predominant thoughts, our predominant emotions, with the people we hang out with, with how we spend our time. It's not just, you know, so go ahead. Yeah, well, it makes me think, I love this, and it makes me think of um, that when we are constantly thinking about and living in a situation that... Uh, has brought us tremendous stress, right? So mm -hmm. when we're constantly talking about it or when we're replaying it in our mind, it's it's almost as if our body doesn't know the difference between the past or the future, even when we're really afraid and we're in fear and we're thinking about worst possible outcome. Yes. It's that we actually experience that in our in our body as if it's happening right now. And uh, and when we get that, that we're by constantly being anxious or in the future and thinking about worst case scenarios or in the past and thinking about who screwed us over, that we're actually reliving and recreating all those experiences right now. And also we can do the opposite when we think about love, when we think about gratitude, when we think about what it is that would bring fulfillment, we start to experience that and, and have those emotions and rewire our brain uh, in, in real time. That's true to a limited extent. And I, I want to clarify a distinction because it, it could be very easy for someone to infer from what we're talking about that it's simply a matter of changing your thought. Mm. That's part of it. But when you talk about the examples you talked about, about fear or rumination or worry or any of those things, first of all, recognize that we are neurologically hardwired for worry. There's a negativity bias in our brain that developed in our ancestors for the purpose of keeping us safe. If you think about our ancestors, cave dwellers or whatever, it made more sense for their brains to scan for predators and danger than for them to appreciate the beauty of the day or the taste of that apple that they were eating. Yeah. Because they were in a situation where it was constantly, their life were, was constantly threatened. Well, we have evolved from those folks. But one of the things that we did, the brain does two things really, really well. It keeps us safe. It's designed to keep us safe and alive. And it builds habits. The catch is very often, and this is where we come to somebody who is trapped with fear or limiting beliefs that are holding them back. The habits that the brain develops to keep us safe then generalize into new circumstances where they're no longer appropriate. 
right? So in addition to simply changing your thought, it's also important, and this is probably a conversation for another interview or for, for your folks to learn more about this, but you've got to, the term is to depotentiate the reactivity in your fight-flight brain, your amygdala, because the reason somebody has a fear response in the present that's not based on the present is because their amygdala, their, their fight-flight brain encoded some memory in their past in such a way that that memory comes back to keep them safe. So we can change our thoughts alone, but we, we have to go deeper to change those emotions that are underlying the fear and the anger. We have to actually go back and depotentiate or repattern our amygdala response. So, so let me ask for some clarity here. So yeah, the, sure. the way that I'm currently understanding this is that it's our, our brain is wired to keep us safe. And so mm-hmm. it, in order to do that, it actually keeps us experiencing or continuing to have thoughts that it had in the past, even if those thoughts aren't necessarily uh, going to be conducive to our fulfillment or our growth or our happiness. It's, it's almost as if familiar equals safe, even if familiar is painful, and I'm going to then stay uh, kind of in, in that realm. Uh, is, that, mm-hmm. is that what you're speaking to in part here? <laughs> That's, that's part of it. Yes. I mean, a, a really simple, almost simplistic example is suppose that you're five years old and you get bit by the neighbor's dog and you run and mom isn't there. Dad's not there. And so you're, you go into a place of panic at five years old. Forty years later, at 45 years old, you're still afraid of dogs or that could be spiders or that could be bridges or that could be elevators or escalators or hikes or anything like that. Mm-hmm. What's happened is your brain has taken a single case and generalized that fear in order to keep you safe, because what happens is your brain in that moment says, okay, I need to avoid this stimulus because this stimulus causes me pain. Hmm. Now, how that can work in another way, suppose you grow up in a household and mom and dad are always afraid about money. Your brain says, okay, money equals fear. You condition your relationship with money just like you conditioned your relationship with that dog biting. And so whenever you have a situation where you're exposed to the possibility of earning more money, you're anxious. Whenever you have to do your taxes, you're anxious. Whenever you don't make enough, you're anxious. Whenever you make too much, you're anxious. Because your relationship with money has been conditioned by what you you experience in your your youth with your folks. Got it. So so how do you support people who are experiencing this? For people who are listening and are like, okay, so let me see how that shows up in my life. What advice or how do you help somebody um, work with this? There's a a couple of steps that are really effective. The first is to recognize, number one, when you recognize that whenever you have an emotion in the present moment that is not appropriate to the stimulus in the present moment, okay, you see a girl with red hair and freckles and you somehow really – don't like her because when you were 15, your girlfriend who had red hair and freckles cheated on you. It's not about the present moment. It's about the past. You have a situation where you see the dog, you see the spider, you become afraid. You think about whatever. So number one, when the emotion is out of proportion with the experience of the present, that means most likely that emotion is linked to some experience in the past. First of all, is becoming aware of that. Number two, The second thing to do is to, if if you take a moment and you're mindful, this is where mindfulness and meditation is great. If If you take a moment to be mindful and track back and ask yourself, where did this come from? Most likely your unconscious will give you an image or a scene or a moment. I had a client that I worked with who just couldn't ever take a break. She would always work through her lunch break and she'd always be anxious. And we started, I started asking her more about it. She says, well, this is, I can't stop. And I said, okay, I want you to go to that I can't stop feeling and track it back as far as you can. She landed in third grade one day when she woke up and her stomach was, she was ill and she wanted to go to, she wanted to go to the school and mom said, no, stay home. And she said, no, I I can't stop. I got to go because she had a perfect attendance record up to that point. And it was that third grade experience that she was replicating now 40 years later. So the moment you become aware of the initial experience, that opens a place in your awareness where you can then make a new decision and make a new choice. Okay, my my third year old, my my eight year old third grade self made that choice, but I can from this moment make a new choice. Okay, 
So that's the second thing. You become mindful of it. You, you track it back to the decision. And then the other thing is you can use any of a number of tools. There's a number of tools available. One is called EMDR, uh, eye, movement deep, deep, uh, eye movement desensitization therapy. There's another called EFT or tapping. There's another called havening. These are all different tools called psychosensory tools that allow you to literally unhook the neurological imprint of that memory. So I would suggest that some of your folks investigate a practitioner who does any of those things to help them mm. as another step. Mm. Super cool. But, well, I love it. And I also want to be uh, conscious of anything else that you want to share related to this. And then I'd also love to talk a little bit about connecting us more deeply with our intuition. And I know that a big, yeah. a big mantra of yours is that life's ultimate goal is living from the soul. So is there, is there anything you'd want to uh, conclude with where we just were before we go into that? Sure. The, this idea of self-directed neuroplasticity, when you really get it, when you really get that in every moment you are shaping your neural structure to reinforce more and more and more of whatever you are making a habit, that you are ultimately in the driver's seat of your own destiny, that you can, through your mind's focus and your heart and gut's guidance, remold your brain to serve your highest purpose. Once you wake, wake up to that, it changes everything. It just changes everything because you realize, oh, my God, I actually have so much more power than I ever dreamed before to shape my future, to shape my destiny. So it's like the neurobiological re realization of what Napoleon Hill wrote about when he wrote Thoughts or Things what Viktor Frankl wrote about when he talked about the capacity to change, what Aristotle wrote about when he said excellence is a habit. You know, it's the where we're, we're finally understanding that all those things are true from a neurological standpoint. And we can shape our destiny by changing the way that we focus our attention. I love it. Sweet. <laughs> so good. So um, I could talk so much more about there uh, in that direction, but I, I do want to uh, make sure that we, we touch into kind of intuition and the soul. Yeah. Um, maybe you can, you can guide us in there and um, tell us a little bit more about what you mean when you say life's ultimate goal is to live from the soul. Jacob, you ask such interesting questions that are that require like five hour answers and we only have seven and a half minutes, dude. Okay. So, uh, no pressure. Like, Just tell us no, the secrets like, of the universe immediately. It's, it's the beauty of your curiosity, man. I totally, I'm, I'm right with you on that. Um, when I say living from the soul, I'm talking about living from one's divine connection. However you define the divine, I don't necessarily mean it has to be God with a G-O-D or like a, a bearded guy in the sky who punishes you when you do wrong or sends you to heaven or whatever. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about a sense of being connected with your source, that source that, that you know, when you, when you read the writings of great people, they all talk about it, whether they're religious or not, whether they're spiritual or not, they all talk about some sense of connection with the whole. You know, and my personal belief and experience is that every one of us, each one of us human beings, um, you know, um, the dude who, Mind Valley, Vishen, the guy who runs Mind Valley, he talks, he says, each one of us is a godical like a particle of God, right? Mm -hmm. And so what, what, when I say living from the soul, I'm talking about living from a conscious awareness that you are sunshine in a spacesuit. You are a soul in a body. You are something infinite and eternal and beautiful and powerful that happens to embody a physical form. Um, and when you, when you have that as a presupposition, you also have this notion of the, something that follows from that presupposition is the idea, well, if I am, more than my body, if I, if there's a part of me that's connected to everything, there's also a part of me that's connected to all knowledge and intelligence and wisdom. And I think of it as like your inner GPS, you know, a regular GPS is hooked up to a satellite that's orbit, orbiting the earth. And there's a little signal that goes to that satellite that tells you exactly where you are in any given moment. And you can't see when you're sitting on 40th street at the, at the stoplight, you can't see what that satellite sees, right? So your inner GPS, your soul, your inner wisdom is like that satellite. It can see everything about your life, past, present, and future, that you can't see right now. So you're in tip, tapping into your in intuition. It's like turning on your inner GPS. 
that can guide you step by step to whatever it is your objective or goal is. Make sense? It does make sense. And, you know, I love the concept and I, I get it. Uh, in my own life, in my own practice. It happens in these interviews too. It's kind of me almost using my curiosity as part of my intuition. Like, oh, well, where's yep. where's that taking me? Um, yep. and, and then I also, I strive to make these conversations actionable for people or at least give them something in a way where it's yes. not, it's not the, just the theory, but we can combine that with an, okay, well, here's something to try or, or here's how you, it might show up in your life. So for people who are listening who are like, okay, well, I, I really want to listen a little bit more deeply to my intuition or what could I possibly do to invite more of that experience into my life? What, uh, what advice might you have? Beautiful. Okay, good. I'm going to start with a very simple principle that you can use in multiple ways. The principle, the idea is that the question contains the answer. Just like the acorn contains the oak, the caterpillar contains the butterfly, the question contains the answer. So here's something your folks can do. Phrase a question. How can I open up to more to intuitive guidance, for example? Or what is my purpose in life? Or how may I experience more love in my relationship with XYZ, whoever? Take that question, write it on the top of a piece of paper. Set a timer for 20 minutes. And every day for seven days, just write everything that comes to your mind in relation to that question. Mm. Do it for seven, seven days in a row. By the end of the seventh day, you'll have an insight or a breakthrough of some kind. And you can do that with any question in the world that you have that you want insight about. So that's one thing. Uh, number two, take well, time. Well, hold, 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 hold on a second. Oh. One second. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Because that's, that's so spot on the money for what I was looking to get from you for people that I don't want to yeah. just gloss over it. So I wanted okay. to say, okay, so here we have it. We've got a practice where the question contains the answer. And so phrase a question in a way that would open up possibility and um, one thing that I, I really look at is, you know, the, the quality of our questions are going to determine the quality of our answers. They're going to determine the quality of our life. And yes. so I, I would also note in this practice, pick a question that can open you up in a way that will allow you to, to receive something that is empowering. And here's an example of not doing that disempowering question is, you know, why am I so stupid? Right? Like that, that, <laughs> right, that right, right. you could sit for 20 minutes, you know, a day for a week. That's not going to get you anywhere good. I don't think, right. You might have a breakdown instead of a breakthrough. <laughs> right. So, so really phrase the question in a way where how can I connect to my intuition or, yes. you know, what would it look like for me to be living with a deep sense of purpose? S some yes. kind of direction in the question that ultimately yes. is going to provide some momentum to take you in, into an empowering place. And then, yes. uh, and you don't need to get that perfect, right? So you don't need to overthink that, but just, just a little heads up there. And then, as Harry said, so 20 minutes a day, sit down with a piece of paper, write the question at the top of the paper, and just let it flow, stream of consciousness, whatever mm -hmm. comes out, get it down on paper, and you do that for a week, and you're bound to see something that you didn't previously see. Yes, and ideally, it's best to actually do this pen and paper or pencil and paper. You can do it on the computer as well, but there's something about the physical act of writing that tends to evoke um, intuitive information. Okay, second thing you can do with the same question. Go to a place that for you is represents safety, serenity, spirit, whatever. It could be a park, could be by a pond or some natural place or whatever, your backyard. And take a moment in that place with the question. Take the question and hold it in your hand or your heart. Um, and take a walk. Walk for 10, 20 minutes. And with that question, hold that question in your heart and your mind as you walk. And most likely by the time you get back from your walk, some insight will have emerged. These are just ways of asking your inner GPS to reveal things to you. Another way that you can do that is a practice called think and listen, where you get another person. And the other person's job is not to say anything to you. They're just to listen to you as though they were listening to the most beautiful symphony in the world. They don't comment. They just provide presence and attention. And you set a timer for 10 minutes. You go for a walk or you sit across from one another and you speak spontaneously on your question. 
and you just let the ideas flow. Important also in the writing that you not stop. Even if you say, I don't have anything to write, this makes no sense, blah, blah, blah. You keep writing. Mm -hmm. You keep the flow going continually for the 20 minutes or think and listen, you keep it going for 10 minutes. I've done think and listens with thousands of people over the years and it inevitably will lead to some kind of insight that helps you with the next step. So you can free write, you can take a walk, you can think a list and listen. Something else that you can do to help you connect with your intuition is to take a moment. If you have a centering practice like yoga or something like that, great, you can use that to get in. If you don't have a practice like that, it's okay. You can sit in a place where you're undisturbed, put your hands on your heart, take a few minutes and breathe in through the heart as though you're literally breathing in energy, prana, chi, through your heart and back. From that place of breathing in, focus on something or someone that brings you a sense of appreciation or gratitude. So you want to actually evoke a positive emotion. Could be appreciation, gratitude, joy, um, peace, whatever. After you do that for a few moments, could be maybe a minute, two minutes, you begin to get a sense of that elevated emotion. With your attention in the heart, ask the question, how may I open more access to my intuition? Or how may I connect with my sense of purpose? Or how can I improve my relationship with Jacob or Joanne or Susie or Harry or whatever? Whatever your question is. And then wait and listen. Mm. And notice what your heart has to say. It might, you might just get a feeling. You might get a sense of an image. You might get words. But what you can count on is every time you do this, neuroplasticity, every time you do this, you are opening a habit, you are creating a habitual neurological channel that allows you to access that kind of intuition more easily. I love it. So good. And it, it makes me want to bridge into what you call the great transformation. And the great transformation is something that, as you speak to, is kind of happening in our planet um, right now. Uh, and and to, I think for many of us, that great transformation will come as a result of listening to that intuition, of developing these practices that you're speaking of. One of the things that you've mentioned to me is that, you know, from the outside, the world looks like it's a really scary time to be alive with everything we see on the media and in the news, um, but that there's actually something else taking place, uh, another movement that has the potential to, um, to to really shift the way that we experience the world and the way that the world is. So, so maybe you could talk a little bit uh, more to that. I, I know we, we, we kind of maybe danced through it a bit today, but if there's anything else you'd want yeah. to add to the great transformation that you see occurring, uh, I'd love to hear that also. Well, thank you for that. It's interesting because we are living in this very, very challenging time. And a lot of folks, I, I talk to a lot of people in my, my generation, a lot of millennials, a lot of younger people, and people are really, really scared. You look at the current political situation, the state of the environment, the social situation, polarities, people not getting together, getting along, and it's really scary. And one of the things that gives me the capacity to be present in the face of all of this with a degree of equanimity and hope, hope not as something outside, but hope as a choice and hopefulness, right, is this idea. If we go back to the the butterfly is a metaphor. Butterfly starts with a caterpillar, and the caterpillar has a hundred legs, and those legs can represent the old systems and structures and ways of being that keep it bound to the leaf or the earth. It goes into a chrysalis, and everything starts to dissolve. Those legs are gone. They melt away. It's dark. It's sticky. Who knows what's going on in there? It's a very difficult place to be. And out of that chrysalis comes the butterfly, a whole new birth. You know, I don't, do you know Prince EA? Oh, yeah. He, yeah, I mean, he, he had a beautiful, beautiful, his uh, his video, I Am Not Black, You're Not White. It ends with this whole, the picture of the butterfly, right? The, the whole, what, if, what if we as humanity were in a chrysalis? And, you know, what happens in the chrysalis, if you're in the chrysalis, you will go and you will think in one of three ways. Number one, you want to do everything you can to get back to being a caterpillar because that was safe and that was secure and those hundred legs kept you on the ground. Mm. That's, that's one way of looking at it. And this is metaphorical for the individual and the social life, right? We tend to want to go back to the way things were, make America great again, so to speak, right? Okay. Number two, 
if you're in the chrysalis, the other way to look at it is like, holy shit, everything is falling apart. Right. I can't count on anything. Life is over. I'm dying, obviously, because the caterpillar is dying, right? But inside the chrysalis, there are cells that are called imaginal cells that contain the template of the butterfly. And those are the cells that are going to basically dictate the development of this new life form on the other side of the chrysalis. So the question that I have for an individual who's going through a transformation or the society is what happens when you look to the butterfly? What happens when you ask your intuition, okay, I'm in the chrysalis now, the caterpillar's dead, I can't go back there. But what is my butterfly? What is emerging? What is the possibility? And when you look at that from the standpoint of humanity, I have a song that speaks to this. I'll just share one verse of it. It goes, we have everything we need to build a world that works for all. We have everything it takes right now to answer freedom's call. When with every word and deed we choose to let the love increase, then in every land and nation we shall live as one in peace. When with every word and deed we choose to let the love increase. H.G. Wells, almost 100 years ago, wrote, H.G. Wells, who was the, the author of The War of the Worlds and a fiction writer and nonfiction historian, he wrote, humanity is in a race between education and catastrophe. I think the same is true today more than ever before. So on one hand, we could create a world that works for nobody and experience something that's truly horrific. On the other hand, at the same time, we have the potential of the birth of an entirely new human civilization, one planet, one people under love. Which reality happens? I believe which reality happens depends on each one of us because every person can be a bridge between the world we have and the world we want. Every human being can be the hope of humanity in being the change that we all want to see. And it's really a matter of, do I tune in to the chrysalis and the chaos? Do I try to escape back into the past of what used to be, which is no longer the case? Or do I orient myself towards what is emerging? Barbara Marks Marks Hubbard said about our human situation, said our crisis is the birth. If you look at a mother right before having a child, a natural childbirth, and you see only her from the head up, it looks like she's in agony. She's contracting, she's in labor pains, etc. Moments after the child is born, that agony turns to ecstasy. Who knows that we are not experiencing the birth throes of a new humanity? There's evidence for that. More people in your generation, I remember you hearing you, hearing you say this on a podcast, less racist, more connected, more environmentally aware, more socially active, more politically progressive, more a greater sense of one human family. Mm-hmm. Technologies. We have the technologies to build a world that works for everybody. Go to the solutionsproject.org. I think that's the one. And there's a plan of how we can convert to 100% renewables by 2030. I mean, literally in 13, 14 years, we could have a planet where we were dealing with completely renewable energy. No need for coal, no need for oil, no need for nuclear, all without disadvantage to anybody. You know, Buckminster Fuller wrote back in the 70s a book called Utopia or Oblivion. He said, soon humanity would reach a point where we could have the choice between a world that works for no one or a world that works for everyone. I believe the only I believe the possible society is only a thought away. We just don't know it's possible yet. And when a critical mass of human beings understands, number one, that we have everything we need to build a world that works for all, we've got the tools, the techniques, the technology, the money, the resources, and they also rouse the political awareness and the will to make it happen, we will live in a world that works for everybody. And that's the great transformation. Mm. But whether or not it happens depends on each one of us. Thomas Berry, the theologian, ecologist, said that we are moving into what he calls the ecozoic era. That is the era of humanity living not as a cancer cell on the earth, but living in harmony with all the earth. And we are in that transition right now. Huh. But, but like Wells said, it's a race between education and catastrophe. How many people can wake up to the possibility of a world that works for all before the forces of entropy and fear and the caterpillar become more destructive? Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. So the great transformation and ultimately recognizing that's going to 
going to stem from the great discovery, which is that we can restructure our brain to live with uh, more of the love that is possible and the and to to choose how we want to respond to what's happening instead of getting exactly. to a, a, an overwhelming fear and panic where we, we lose our hope. Um, Harry, anything else that you want to – we packed in a ton. Let me just start by saying that. <laughs> Oh boy, this was good. Uh, where is is there anything else you wanna you wanna throw into the conversation today? And then whether you do or not, um, ultimately let's let's leave people with a place that they can continue to engage with your you and your work after this interview. Yeah, there's several things I'd like to say to to bring our conversation to close. Number one, I want to give you just tremendous appreciation and respect and admiration for several things. Number one, having the courage back when you did a few years ago to say no to the caterpillar Mm. and enter into this chrysalis of discovery and mystery and challenge and all of that and to have the courage to do that and not only to do it for yourself, but have the courage and the compassion to share it with others. Because I believe you, Jacob, are part of this emerging generation of global agents of transformation who by your example and by your modeling, by your curiosity, by your sharing on this global platform of the web are helping to usher in this new transformation. So the thing I'd like to say to everybody is that it's important that you recognize that no matter what your circumstance in life, no matter what it looks like, we now know this is not just spirituality or, or, or philosophy. It's actually neurobiology. That it's possible for you to transform that circumstance. It begins, as Viktor Frankl said, by changing the focus of your attention. It also begins, as you've taught, Jacob, by maybe changing your reference group, changing the people you're around, changing your environment. But even more importantly, it also begins with beginning to dare to dream and ask yourself the question, okay, what is the butterfly of my caterpillar? What is the full potential of who I could become? What is the, mm, what is the, the life of my soul de- desiring me to become? You know, what is this evolutionary possibility? Because what I believe, just like the question contains the answer, the more we focus on who we can become, that ideal, the more we use our intuition to help us mold and shape that ideal, the more we grow into it, the more we grow into our butterfly, the more we grow into our possibilities. And then as we do that individual work, it's important to recognize that I believe the purpose of individual transformation is ultimately to serve global transformation. It's one thing to get your life together, to get your money together, to get your relationships together and all that. That's great. And as all of those things come together, ask the question, okay, how can I use this to help transform our planet? How can I use this to serve in life in a higher way? Because I do believe that every one of us has the capacity of becoming a living bridge between the world we have, this world of chaos and crisis and change and challenge, to the world we want, one people, one planet under love. And it begins right now, right here, with your very next thought. Harry, thank you so much. So beautiful. And I'm not going to spoil it by saying anything more. Uh, How can people uh, engage with you and and continue to stay on this path and journey with yourself? Uh, The best thing to do right now is to follow on Facebook. I have a number of initiatives that are coming out next spring, and I'll have websites and, and other more web presence at that point right now find me on facebook okay beautiful and uh we will link to that in the show notes um you guys can also google uh harry and um just look at his name on the uh on the episode title and find him from there um harry thank you so much for being here i really appreciate the kind words and all of your wisdom and yeah thank you so much for doing your own inner work and and outer work in order to help us uh, learn, integrate, and embody uh, so much of what you're passionate about. So thank you, Harry. You're welcome. My great prayer for the world is it will be filled with people like you. So thank you. Thanks so much for rocking with us. If you dug today's interview, I'd love if you'd be game to share it 
with somebody in your real life. You can share it on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, wherever, but also with someone who you think might benefit directly from it. And one last thing, we've got some really exciting things happening in the near future. I'm gearing up to implement some new ways and fun opportunities to help you transform your life with what we spoke about today and some other goodness in the near future. And so in order to make sure that you get the down low on how to rock with us, what I'd love for you to do is head on over to sensify.com and make sure that you're subscribed to the newsletter. So that's S-E-N-S-O phy.com and I will share with you the most ballistic behind the scenes absolute dopeness that will hopefully light up your day and also some great opportunities to engage with our community to get support in making these meaningful changes that we spoke about today. So sensify.com, sign up for the newsletter and feel free to shoot me a personal email after you sign up as you will get the opportunity to reply to my email when you do that. So much love. Looking forward to talking soon. Thanks for rocking with us. Have yourself a dope day. Later.